today is our current uh, homepage announcement, which I know is super long. It has a bunch of information in it relevant to Field Notebook 2. So I just wanted to sort of point out what's there. The, the stuff in blue is all about the new resources that I posted after class on Wednesday to help you with the find and illustrations of the IPA and save it as a PDF so that it's ready to upload. So you can now access this information multiple ways. That first link, I know it's tiny type, but it says, or access the demo as PDF. I made a, just a PDF file with screenshots of every step I took as I used the infamous Google Chrome to go get myself on illustrations of the IPA article. So you can see the screenshots if you want, or you can actually see the video where I'm talking while I'm doing it. Um, and those three links are all links to the same video. And you'll notice that if you ever try to access the podcast lectures for the class, if you click through on a particular day, you'll always see these three links. The first two links go to the university's streaming server. They differ from each other uh, only in image size. So one of them is smaller than the other. The smaller one, sorry, there's chatting. So the smaller one uh, should have better performance. The bigger one takes a little bit more bandwidth. I have heard some of you report that either bandwidth you have trouble with buffering being able to see those, those files. So the third link that you always get is a link that takes you to the same video on iTunes. And once you get to iTunes, you can either view the video inside of the iTunes application, or you can download it to your computer and play it locally, which means it's not being streamed from anywhere, which means it won't, it won't have buffering problems. The only downside of doing it that way, if you're downloading the file, is that these are videos, and so the files are large. So the download time can take a while. But hopefully, one of those three options works for you if you ever need to access the podcast material. This material in green is the information I promised you guys about everybody's office hours. So. You can visit any of us during any of our office hours. Of course, the best possible plan is for you to visit your own section instructor during that person's office hours or by appointment, because that's the person who's actually grading your work. So if that person tells you, this is excellent to do this, you can be absolutely certain that when they see you do that, they will again say, excellent, you did that. If you ask me, I will give you information which I believe to be reliable, right? which is in general going to be in the right ballpark, but I do not know exactly what your section instructor has emphasized or de-emphasized. And it is just the fact that on any sort of grading of written work, there's greater variability. So it's good information you can get from me, but it's less perfect than the information you get from your own grader. Similarly, anybody else on the team, okay? We'll all be in the same ballpark, but there will be 
there will be minor variations. That's just inevitable when we're grading written work. So this, this information, keep it, think about it. Um, most of our office hours are already complete for this week. There are still a few office hours this afternoon. There's one poor soul who's holding office hours on Thursday. But hopefully you've, I mean, you've had a lot of time, a lot of forewarning on this guy. So hopefully you've already taken care of that. If you haven't, this is our information. And I've also included our email addresses. We are all available by appointment. The caveat is, our teaching team is students, too. And so if you send them an email Thursday morning and say, hey, can I meet with you this afternoon, they might not even read that email till Thursday night, because they're in classes. This week, we've got um, visiting graduate students from the prospective students. So there's lots of events that our graduate students in the department are required to participate in this week, this weekend. So they're not going to be available. <laughs> quickly. Um, but you can always ask. Uh, and my office hours, as you know, are right after this class. So I know there are some people planning to walk back to my office with me. That's awesome. If you want to come, join us. That's fine. Uh, and then there's, there's other information that's been there for a while now about the Dropbox and such. Do you guys have any questions at this point about the logistics of this, hey, wait, of this whole Field Notebook 2 gig? You're so certain you know exactly what to do. That's excellent. Now, can I find the stupid projector control? Yes. There. Let me do this. Yay, there we are. Okay. This information has not changed. It's just a reminder. I'm actually going to make it a little bit darker up front. I don't know. Does that help? Okay. Um, you know, it's terrifying. So exciting. We've been talking about Field Notebook 2 forever. You know you need two files. One of them should be your illustrations of the IPA. You don't expect us to grade your work if you don't submit both of those files on time, right? Because we, we said we will not. And I made a lot of things, but I tried very hard not to be a liar. We will not. I will, um, I peeked this morning into the Field Notebook 2 Dropbox as of 10 a.m. 39 people had successfully submitted their illustrations of the IPA article. Those 39 people should pat themselves on the back right now. Woohoo! Good work! Um, that leaves only 110 people who haven't done it by that time. So if you're in the 110, do upload your article. Do it really soon, OK? Because if you let it go, you can forget. And then we all cry and are sad, and it's not any fun at all. 
You all have gotten feedback on the illustrations of the IPA article you found for homework two. If what you turned in for homework two wasn't acceptable, I trust that you've now found something that is. It needs to be called illustrations of the IPA and it needs to be about a particular language so you'll know you have the right thing if it's called that and if it has the consonant and vowel charts. If it doesn't have those pieces, it's probably not right. Okay. Our assignment submission rules say you need to upload at least the first page of that article to the Dropbox. And that is true. That is what we will hold you to, at least the first page of the article. I would say best practice is upload the whole thing. If you can just save the first page by itself and give us that, that's sufficient. You know why it is we want the first page? Because that's where the referencing information is. People are chatting in the middle here and not knowing why we want the first page. Um, that's right, because from the first page of the article, we can check your referencing. And that's what we want to do. We want to make sure that you're, you're citing things correctly. It should be, whatever you submit, should be a separate file from your field notebook to file. Okay, so you shouldn't like add the first page of your illustrations of the IPA paper as the last page of your field notebook to. Don't do that. It confuses us and makes us fall over. We're easily confused. You should not upload a link. Okay? Not a link, a file. Excellent. And if you're not sure how to do that, we've got lots of resources to help you. And, uh, you know, send me a note. I'll, I'll do my best to help you too. Um, should you ever, in any of your field notebook too, mention the URL of your article? For our referencing and citation style, the URL of your article is completely irrelevant. We do not want that information. There's technical reasons why that information messes things up. If you give us just a link, most of the time, if we try to click through on that link or use it, it will break because the link assumes you've gone through the library's authentication and then through the publisher's authentication, and so it's not. But we don't care that you got it, the article off of the web. What you got was an article that was actually published in a real live journal that exists also in paper. It doesn't matter whether you got the one on the web or the one in paper. In our citation style, you just cite the article, okay? And that's going to be true for all of the articles. There will be two more articles that you'll find this term. Same rules apply. Okay. So I encourage you, if you haven't done this yet, to do it today. And this is... Is Emily's horse and he's called... Cupid. Where's Emily? Oh. And do you see why he's called Cupid? That's a heart. He's beautiful. He has this little white thing on his lip too, which is very sweet. Carved okay. <laughs> in stone. PDF. We follow our 
What's your cat's name? Angel. Angel. Aren't those sweet names? Cupid and Angel. Beautiful kitty. Okay. Ah. I'm sneaking a word into the review slides, which is a word that I have not really used in lecture. It's in your readings, though. And it's in red. So we use the word phone to refer to speech sounds, right? And this word is based on the word phone. This word is phoneme. Do you know what the difference is between a phone and a phoneme? Phone is a speech sound, any speech sound used in any language. What's a phoneme? A phoneme is a speech sound that is used in a particular language. So if I give you a speech sound like you know that how you would write that in IPA, right? Is letter F. That's a phone. It's a possible speech sound. Um, is it a phoneme? Well, I actually can't answer that question unless you ask me, is it a phoneme in which particular language? So being a phoneme means you belong to a language. Is a phoneme of English? Yes. yes. Excellent. Is a phoneme of your language? Might be yes, might be no, right? Did you pick it? Is it on your chart? Then it's a phoneme. Okay? Good. So the phonemes, last time we were talking about how languages are uh, arrange their sounds into these bigger rhythmic units, and the units are called? Syllables. Thank you. And those syllables are in turn organized into words. Correct. And these terms, onset, nucleus, coda, rhyme, those are all names of positions inside of the syllable, not the word. So true or false, words in any spoken language can have onsets. Ah, false. Why? Onsets aren't a part of a word. They're part of a syllable. Ha ha, you. True or false? Syllables can have onsets in any spoken human language. True, yes. That has a consequence. That all human languages have at least some words that begin with consonants. But the consonants aren't onsets to the word. They're onsets to the word initial syllable. Words in any spoken one moment. Words in any spoken language can have codas. True or false? False. False. You should now be able to say in a loud, clear voice, false. Why is that false? The words don't have codas. Syllables. Can all human languages have codas in their syllables? No, not all of them can. Some of them can. Go ahead, Richard. But wouldn't that be true though with the single syllable word? Because the coda because the coda would be part of that word is double one syllable. So is it true in a single syllable word? And my answer to that is no, it's never gonna be true. 
And that's because the, the concept of coda is a, a coda is never a piece of a word directly. It's always a piece of a syllable. Syllables build words, right? But words are not, I uh, know, it's the tree thing. It's this idea, we will, we will hit this idea over and over and over again. This seems to be how every level of human language is organized. You have little bits organized into a unit. That unit organized into a bigger unit. That unit organized into a bigger unit. And so and so, and so on, and so on. And that organization, so that turns out to be hierarchical organization. That's why linguists love trees, is because trees are a kind of diagram that show hierarchy in structure. That seems to be how languages do it. And it's really important as you're starting to understand all this, that we keep those levels of organization clear. Okay. So this was the slide we ended on last time. And I've done one change. Last time, the word in that green box was phones. I changed that word to phonemes. Okay. This was one possible syllabification of this word. There was another possible one, remember? So things I might ask you about with respect to syllabification on an exam based on a slide like this. I might give you a picture that just has the CV skeleton and maybe the tree. And I might point to a node on the tree and ask you to tell me what that node is called. Right. I might give you a word and tell you it's a one-syllable word and ask you to find the, the, what the syllable edges are, what's the onset of that syllable, what's the coda of that syllable. Right. So this is the the kind of diagram you want to have handy in your notes for when you're taking the first exam. Okay, are we good? Excellent. These are squirrels. So this is a word that, that you've seen in the reading. That's used, I use it to make a claim that English allows words to be made of consonants, right? With no vowels in them at all, this word has no vowel in it, at least as I've transcribed it here, right? It's squirrels. Let me close the opening poll and ask you, though. So what I want you to do is think about how you say the word squirrels. You personally say it. Not in a way where you're like trying to hyper sound it out, but just how you normally say that word. And I'm going to open a poll, and I'm going to ask you to give me the number of syllables you think that word has in your own speech. And so let me, let me do that. How many syllables does the word squirrels have for you? Squirrels. 
Squirrels. Squirrels. Squirrels. <laughs> if you say it enough times, it stops meaning anything. Yeah. <laughs> and they're attacking each other. <laughs> okay. If you haven't voted yet, please do so rapidly. Because I'm dying to know how many syllables you guys think this word has. All right. Oh. Nine. <laughs> Look at that. So this is a sequence that could be syllabified at least a couple of different ways, actually, and still follow the syllabification rules for English. So it's one of those cases where there are multiple possible right answers. I think when I say this word, I think it's one syllable long. And if I had to make up a rhyming word, <laughs> can you think of any words in English that rhyme with squirrels? Pearls, whirls, pearls. Those to me all feel like one syllable too. Mm. So if I, if I was like writing a poem in which I had to count syllables in a line, or like a haiku, we should have you guys all write haikus about squirrels and see whether you really count it as one. That's one of the ways you would diagnose it. I think it is also possible for a perfectly good English speaker on a perfectly good day with fully 100% accurate introspection about how many syllables in the word squirrels to make this into a two-syllable word. And those of you who are doing that, can I ask you to shout it out, but try to give me like a little pause or a break between the two syllables. Squirrels. Squirrels. Bulls, something like that, right? Let me show you what that would look like. Ah, there we go. So a couple of things to note. The er and the ol are both sonorant consonants. And English allows er to be a syllable by itself, and it also allows old to be a syllable by itself. So, so if you have two syllables in this word, then I think one of them has the er as its nucleus, and the other one has the ol as its nucleus. Right? The one that has er in the nucleus, squir, does not have a coda. The one that has ol in its nucleus does not have an offset. But it does have a coda. Go ahead, Richard. You can do it with every single one of those. Girls. 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 Yeah. So in English, when you've got any of the, when you've got these R's and O's, and also it can happen with M's and M's, we can sometimes make those into nuclei. And so you can get variability between speakers, or even maybe sometimes you say it with one syllable and sometimes you say it with two. Right. 
they can go both ways. But the reason that you can get both syllabifications is that both syllabifications are perfectly okay given the general situation for English. Okay, so they're both following good phototactic constraints that we know are true on independent grounds in this language. So there are some of the words you've invented in your language for which there's going to be only one right answer about how it could be syllabified. There are going to be other words in your language for which there could be multiple possible right answers. You're the linguist studying your language, you get to say which it is. Right? And you just have to be careful that you're not positing something that's impossible according to the universals that are described in the reading or that we've talked about together. Okay. So either way, everybody agrees squirrels is a word? Yes. Do, does everybody agree that squirrels is one word? Excellent. I think it is one word also. <coughs> But I want to now get us to transition to the next layer of linguistic structure. This is just a smaller version of the same picture on the one-syllable reading. Right. In your field notebook two, you're looking at the structure of the sounds of the word. Beginning with field notebook three, uh, you will be looking at something a little bit different. Come on. There we go. Something that starts now to have to do with meanings. So you've noticed that up till this point, the only time we've even mentioned meanings is that you had to have meanings from the Swadesh list to start with, and you had to give glosses of the words. But otherwise, we really haven't talked much about what things mean. We need to think about meanings. And I'm going to give you a different tree. Same word. Now, this tree represents what I think the morphological, that is, the word internal structure, as it affects meaning, what that structure is for this word, squirrels. So let me talk you through what this means. I think we have a root word, squirrel. Right? And it has a meaning. It's, it, if I had to categorize that word squirrel, I would think of it most naturally as being a noun. Can you use that as a verb in English? Squirrel? Squirrely, yes. Yeah, you can be, well, you can have an adjective squirrely, you can squirrel things away, then it's a verb, right? We will find that identifying things like the category of the word is highly contingent on how the word's being used in a particular context. But I would argue that if I just, you know, I saw you on the, on the mall and I said, hey, squirrel, you think of the noun. You wouldn't think, oh, she's telling me to hide something. You would think, oh, there's a squirrel in the environment somewhere. You might just think she's crazy and crazy why she's shouting squirrel. Um, and then I think there's a suffix on that word. And I think, so this is, this is IPA, right? This is the pronunciation of the word. I think you say squirrels. I don't think you say squirrels. You might say squirrels if you speak a particular 
dialect of American English that's centered around Chicago. There's a working class Chicago dialect. It's made, these to be made fun of on Saturday Night Live a billion years ago with the guys who all go to the shop and they talk about the bears. <laughs> Those guys have suh in this environment. But, but I think most English speakers actually pronounce that as That's why I've still written it here phonetic. But whatever the pronunciation of it is, I think that that suffix has a meaning. And the meaning is plural, right? In this case, if I just say squirrels to you, I think you're going to believe I mean that there's more than one. Plural number. Good. So the word squirrels has this structure in terms of its sounds, but it has this structure in terms of its meaning. And those two things are different. Right? It's one syllable, or maybe two that has this internal structure. We've just got two pieces, two meaningful pieces. And those are connected. So this is the structure of its meaning. Okay. Whose dog is this? Chris's dog, named Dusty the Whiskey. It's beautiful. Okay. So, so. Meaning. How do, how do languages use these crazy sound things to build up things that might mean something? Well, if we have a word like squirrels, I'm going to say that that word consists of two meaningful elements. That is, two morphemes. New vocabulary item. You've read about this. Probably haven't talked about it. Okay, so a morpheme is just some pronounceable thing. Usually it's that has some meaning. Okay. And in a world like word like squirrels, there are two of them. This one, this one's the root. Why am I calling it the root? Because it's giving us the basic meaning of the whole thing. So a root morpheme is a morpheme that gives us the basic meaning of the word as a whole. I call this a suffix. What, is this, what does it mean to say something's a suffix? It's a, it's a morpheme, but it's a morpheme that has to be added to a root. And in particular, it has to be added to the end of the root. If it had to be added to the beginning of the root, what, what do I call it? A prefix. If it gets stuck in the middle of a root, do you remember what that's called? An infix. So there's a generic term for these guys, um, affix. Now, how did I know that the word squirrels has those two meaningful elements in it? Well, because speakers of the language can identify them and associate them with meanings, and the meaning of the whole word is combined, the combination of the meanings of both morphemes. Okay. So this seems really simple and obvious when you hear it this way, but I want you to just take a moment and store this because it's important. And English will mess you up if you forget about it. So I know that the word squirrels contains a morpheme squirrel, which means furry rodent who gathers nuts. And a morpheme plural, which means at least two of those. 
And I know that because the word squirrels means furry rodent that gathers nuts, at least two of them. Now, I, I, I want to give you some examples of some words that are not English words. Um, and I just want you to think about it. Uh, what's going on? Can you identify any morphemes here? Wait. Yeah, uh, going back to the other one, yeah. how can the S be a morpheme? Because it says that it has to have meaning, but S by itself doesn't have meaning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Wayne is asking, wait, how is S a morpheme? It doesn't really have a meaning. So there are, there's meaning and there's meaning. Right? So squirrel has a meaning like a dictionary definition, like you can look them up and figure out what in the world that refers to. Plural, that, that has a meaning, right? The meaning sort of, there's a bunch of them or something. But there are there are morphemes who don't that don't really have a dictionary definition so much as they have a function or a use. They're functional. Yeah, their their function gives them meaning. But the meaning is functional, but the word by the letter by itself alone meaning. Right. So if I just if I saw you and you were walking across the mall and there were multiples of you and I said. You would not know how to interpret that. But I might have mean plural. It doesn't work that way. So this is a, a root, but it's also a free morpheme. It can be a morpheme, a word all by itself. This is an affix. That's also sometimes called a bound morpheme. Has to attach to something else. Excellent. Okay, back to back to our fake language. If you figured it out, just store it, okay? Um, so, so let's, I've written these words in IPA. In your language, you're going to write the words in IPA because you have no choice, right? That's the only way they exist. So let's say this word. Right? Think about this. Do you see that there's evidence maybe in here for some different morphemes? Yes. yes. Excellent. Oh, and that's Halo. Yeah? He's a Jack Russell Terrier. Did you notice that? Yes. <laughs> If you notice that, you are totally amazed. That's how we figure out, for a language we don't speak, whether what the morphemes are. We look at groups of words that seem to be similar in some way and try to track pieces of the words that sort of go along with pieces of meaning. So hopefully you noticed that whenever the thing was talking about multiples, it had a dot. And whenever it didn't, it didn't have a dog. Yes. So, wouldn't the, the DI in both of those uh, uh, mean it is? Uh, good question. Does the DI also mean it is? Perhaps. That's a good hypothesis to make. Um, and you're going to be right. Okay. But let's focus on this one first. You're going to be roughly right. This is Navajo, and the dit actually means multiple stuff. But 
including he or she is. So, so what do you say about this? You come across a pattern like this, like you'll make up one in your language. Well, you might list the morphemes. We've got some roots, right? You've got at least this much. And we can say that much about it, right? Maybe there's more we can say, but we can at least say this much. So here's the fancy way of saying it. There's a prefix, da, it inflects for plural number. What does that mean? It means there's a prefix. You add it to words, and it tells you something about how many entities there are. Okay, Plural number, that's the linguistics term for that set of concepts. All languages have ways of marking how many things are involved in actions. They don't all mark that, that information in the same way. So I would hope you would have noticed that. That in this case, the ones that have da, they mean there has to be three or more. That's different from what plural means in English. In English, plural means two or more. But in this language, there's a category, grammatical number, some kind of plural, and you have to get to at least three to count as a plural. Interesting. So you get to make choices for your language about, I want you, number is one of the categories I want you to think about using in your language for field number three. And there's multiple ways that languages do that kind of thing. I want you to think about how you want your language to do it. The question is, does this language have one for just two? And the answer is, in this kind of word, it does not. Lucy. Oh. Someone asked in the section I visited last time, why do we have the words IPA? One of the great uses of IPA is that if you get an IPA, if you know the IPA, you can pronounce anything, as long as it's written that way. So this is a dog called Lucy, and she's very lovely. And she's the Sholo by the way, Sholo is not an English word. It's a word of Nahuatl, which is a descendant language of the language of the Aztecs. That's how you spell it. I don't know, the English spelling doesn't help me at all. <laughs> but if I get it in IPA, I know what to say. I don't know what it means. We have to look it up. I wanted to do that before class, but I ran out of time. When you are presenting words that have more, more than one morphine in them, from a language that your reader doesn't speak, that is your field language, we're going to have you do it in a way that makes it very easy for us to see what this underlying meaning structure of the word is. And um, that, that way, we call the interlinear gloss. Sometimes we call it the three-line gloss. I'm going to show you what that looks like. Um, and hopefully, once you see it, you'll understand why it's useful. 
We're going to use interlinear glosses when you talk about words in your language that are built of more than one morpheme. So an inter interlinear gloss for a word that is only one morpheme is silly. You just get the word and it's gloss. And you're done for a simple word. But for a complex word, and by complex, I just mean anything that has at least two morphemes. Two to 186. It's all complex. Um, we want to show uh, for each word, the word as it's pronounced, then what each morpheme is doing. And I call this, um, I say the morphemes in English, the meaning of the morpheme or else the function of the morpheme. You'll see from examples how that can be done. And then in the third line, what the whole word means. So let me show you what this would look like for some of the words we just looked at. So here's your first line. Yes. Line three is in English. So the first line is the only line in IPA. And it's just the word. So here's two words we just looked at. What do you see I've added to this word that wasn't in there before? A little dash. What does the dash indicate? The morphine boundaries. Right. Very, very important. Okay, so you're telling your reader this word has at least two meaningful parts. This one and that one. And that's where they are separated. Same thing here. In the second line, oh, now this looks scary. But it's really not that scary if you think about it. Here's a morpheme. I can tell that that's a prefix because it's got a hyphen right here. Do you, do you have a guess what PL period might mean? Plural. Plural, yeah. And see, there's a dash right there. And that dash corresponds to that. So that's how I keep track of what each morpheme is doing. Right? Then I've got this thing, it period, is period hairy. <laughs> so that whole thing, the linguist, me, the linguist, is saying, look, this whole thing means altogether this information in English. In English, it takes me three words to say that. So I have to put my three words. Using periods between the words is a way linguists indicate to each other, these are, this is a clump. It's a meaning clump, right? This is all one morpheme. If it were separable into different morphemes, I would have put hyphens here, and they should correspond to hyphens up there. Does that make sense? So there's a lot of bookkeeping that goes on with presenting things this way. Okay, so we've got things are bumpy, things are hairy, they're plural. And each of those has two morphemes in it. Then the third line is your English translation. Do we have to number the lines? You do not have to write the line numbers. You can write them if it helps you, but you do not have to. Just have to make sure that all three of those lines are there and that they line up. So What's line one for? What is that telling us? It's telling us how to pronounce the word and where the morphine boundaries are. Right. What is line two doing? Meanings of each morphine. We sometimes call line two the morphine by morphine 
gloss. Gloss, G-L-O-S-S, -S, is a term that is roughly equivalent to translation, except if you call something a gloss, what you mean is that it's short and maybe full of abbreviations and maybe not that clear. <laughs> Whereas a translation should be very rich and beautiful and clear and perfect and describe all the, all the properties of the thing. Okay. So abbreviations. We have in linguistics some standard abbreviations, and people, linguists also make up weird abbreviations on the fly. For you, I don't, you don't have to know what the standard abbreviations are. You can make up abbreviations where you need to. Since those morpheme-by-morpheme morpheme glosses want to line up with the morphemes, if you've got a morpheme that's real short, you don't want to have to take this much space. To, right, so an abbreviation can be in order. All we ask is that if you use an abbreviation here, you explain in the text of your paper what the abbreviation means. So if I was using this example for my field notebook three, I would have to say somewhere, the abbreviation PL means plural. Done. And then why do we have the third line? Gives us the whole picture, right? So we should be able to see from the meaning of this, that it's built up out of these meanings, right? So the three line glosses, the interlinear glosses, are the gold standard for presenting complex things in some language that your reader doesn't speak. It allows the reader to see exactly how things are working. Okay, and, okay so I learned two things today. One thing I learned is that there's a breed of dog called the Inca orchid, which is different from that other breed of dog, who is also sometimes called the Mexican hairless. And the, we also, I also learned that Harry passed away just yesterday, Friday. So he was a beautiful boy. He will be missed. Okay. So, so far we've, we've talked generally about there's these things called words. And I hope you now know what I mean by a simple word versus a complex word, yeah? A complex word is one that has two or more morphemes in it. A simple word is one that is one morpheme only, sometimes called monomorphemes. This is in the readings, but we haven't talked about it. Words, morphemes, fall into at least two different broad categories. There's the ones that have meanings in Wayne's sense of the word meaning, dictionary definitions. And then there's the ones that just seem to do stuff. So if you want a real brain te teaser as a speaker of English, think about the word of, spelled O-F, and ask yourself, what does it mean? Collect all the various uses of of, it can mean belonging to. It can mean the. It can mean resemble. It can mean but. It can mean a million different things, right? And the fact is, it actually doesn't mean anything, but it does stuff. It's a way English sticks nouns into things where they couldn't go if they didn't have of. So, a word like of is a function word, not a content word. A word like squirrel is a content word, not a function word, right? If you know the poem The Jabberwock, 
by Lewis Carroll. You know that poem? If you don't know it, you should. It's awesome. Take a look at that poem, or think about it in your head, as it relates to content versus function words. That poem has a lot of words in it that aren't real, at least weren't <coughs> words of English. But those fake words, those new words in the Jabberwock, they're all content words. The function words in the Jabberwock are all normal English words. Twas brillig, brillig. But it was, and the function words. Slightly toves, content. Did, function. Gyre, gyre, and gyre and gizzle in a way. Right, in the function words. So, so. Content versus function words, and we're going to start looking at then how we can categorize those words into the familiar lexical classes that you think you learned about in fifth grade. Except what you're going to find out now, Liz, is that those definitions you learned in the fifth grade for things like noun and verb are just wrong. We have better definitions for you. So that's where we start. On the day.